Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Ido Vok in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 4th of December. Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Ido, how are you in Berlin? Pretty good. I think at the moment, quite a lot of attention is on, in parallel, also the negotiations over the EU's recovery fund, which are currently held up because of Hungary and Poland, which I imagine we'll talk about. But yeah, this constantly this kind of life at a slightly slower pace and um, mm. everything is very quiet. And how is DC? I mean, DC is fine, but this week on Wednesday, we had the US that has had at least 2,760 deaths related to COVID on a single day. It was the largest death toll so far in a single day. And so it's hard for me at least to be like, yeah, it's fine when that's happening. So that's that's the state of things here. We're going to speak about the state of things elsewhere in the world. I'm very excited because this is the first podcast in many weeks in which our conversation, our main conversation, will not really be about the U.S. at all. But before we bring our guest in, Ido, what has been the moment this week that you think will go down in history? So this week, uh, former French President Valéry Giscard d'Estaing died at the ripe old age of 94. And I think this is really interesting because in many ways, Giscard d'Estaing was the predecessor of Macron and Macron's current French president, Macron's ideology. He was pro-European. He was a, a modernizer at heart. And, and he was president in the, I think, 1970s. So he built high-speed rail lines, uh, promoted nuclear energy in response to the oil crisis of the 1970s, legalized abortion, divorced by mutual consent, and, and so on. And so in many, many ways, he kind of set the scene for a new kind of poli liberal politics, which Macron would later build upon and move away from the old dividing lines of basically Gaulism versus socialism, which had dominated French politics since the end of the Second World War. And what's yours? At the risk of every week being like, and here is something that happened in India. My moment of the week, again, comes to us from India, where more than 200,000 Indian farmers and their supporters have been protesting in New Delhi. They're protesting against these new agriculture reform laws, which basically would have farmers sell goods and you know negotiate their contracts with independent buyers that is not in government-sanctioned marketplaces, which is at, at present where they've been doing business. Prime Minister Narendra Modi and other members of the ruling BJP have said that this is this is important for, for innovating and improving the agriculture sector and the farming industry. But 
the farmers are concerned that this will mean a drop, not only in minimum support prices, but it, but in how much they make and are able to, to bring in and how much they're able to to live off. So it's one that I've been watching and one that I you know think is, is worth all of us continuing to watch. With that, we are gonna, going to bring in our guest. This is somebody who I've wanted to have on this podcast for many weeks, so I'm very excited to have her today with us. Annabelle Chapman. She is a Europe-based journalist, specifically based in Warsaw, but covers Europe more generally. And most importantly, of course, a New Statesman contributor. Annabelle, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. So to start out, you know, you wrote this very beautiful piece for us at the New Statesman called How Poland's Abortion Protests Became a Fight for Democracy. But just in case anyone listening has not read it, just before we dive in, if you could give us some some of the context for these abortion protests and why they've been as big and as impactful as they've been. So the protests have been a response to a court ruling on the 22nd of October by Poland's Constitutional Tribunal which basically ruled that it is unconstitutional for a woman to have an abortion in cases where there are severe um, defects with the fetus. This ruling prompted massive protests across Poland, some of the largest protests since the fall of communism in 1989. And I think the reason the reaction was so strong was that many people who don't necessarily share the same political views came together to protest because they felt that the government had gone too far on this issue. That's interesting. Sometimes when we speak about certain kinds of political parties, there's this temptation that I've noticed for some people to say, well, you know, that social issue, that's a a distraction from what they're doing to amass or protect their political power. I think you've seen this a lot mm-hmm. here in the US. You see it, certainly people say it about what's happening in Hungary. Do you similarly see the social issues as a distraction or do you see it as core to law and justice's agenda? I think it's a bit of both. Mm. The ruling was issued by a court. So in theory, its defenders say that it's an objective ruling. But on the other hand, the constitutional tribunal, the court that issued the ruling, has been controlled by the ruling party for the past few years. So it's not widely seen to be an independent court. This may mean that the government had some influence over the timing of the of the ruling. What could the distraction be about There are two things happening at the moment. The first thing is the coronavirus. And at the time of the ruling, the number of cases was very, very high. And this ruling might have been a way to distract attention away from the government's handling of the health crisis. And the other thing are the tensions within the ruling coalition. So the right-wing Law and Justice Party and its two junior coalition partners, there have been a lot of tensions in the past few months, even threatening to bring down the government so this ruling may have been a way to sort of shift attention away from that as well. That's really interesting, particularly the point about the independence of the judiciary. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit more widely. So one of the things I've been hearing, speaking to people about the situation in Hungary, is that when you have a judiciary that cannot be reliably that is not independent, essentially. That means that law, and in particular EU law, doesn't apply because if it, and it doesn't apply as, as intended because if the judiciary isn't independent, then the law, you can't write law in the same way. And uh, what is the current situation with the control of the judiciary in Poland? And is it kind of, is it a new thing or has it been around for a while? So after the Law and Justice Party came to power in late 2015, one of the first sort of institutions tried to take over was the judiciary. And it started with the Constitutional Tribunal, 
This is the court that did the abortion ruling. And then later on, it moved on to the Supreme Court. And from the start, these actions prompted a conflict with the European Union, with the European Commission accusing the Polish government of undermining the, the rule of law. As you were saying, the rule of law is really one of the foundations of the European Union project. I think Merkel once said that without the rule of law, you can't have the EU. So this is a really fundamental issue. But as the past few years have shown, the EU has really struggled to find a way to make the Polish government and similarly the Hungarian government respect these values. And it's tried various instruments with rather limited success. Yeah, of course. And, and one of those instruments is the rule of law clause in the recovery fund, uh, the EU's recovery fund, which has been held up by vetoes from Hungary and Poland. What is your reading on that particular situation? And more generally, I suppose, what is the kind of attitude of the government to these attempts to limit what they see as democratic backsliding from principally Hungary, but also Poland? I think that in some ways, these attempts by the European Union, especially if they're done not too sensitively, they have bolstered these governments because one of the cards that both of these governments, Poland and Hungary, play is it's sort of the EU against us. Both governments have won a lot of votes by emphasizing sovereignty and this sort of nationalist anti-EU rhetoric. So neither of them talks overtly about leaving the EU, but it's sort of, they're not going to tell us what to do, Brussels and Berlin, right? So if there's this finger wagging in Brussels, it does in a way strengthen this populist nationalist narrative in Budapest and Warsaw. You know, moving back from Brussels to to Warsaw, we spoke a lot <laughs> about, maybe too much, some might say, earlier on this year on this podcast about the Polish presidential election, you know, and what it would mean for, for Poland and for Central and Eastern Europe more generally if Trzaskowski won, but he lost. And so what do you think that meant for the future of, I, I guess I'll call it for lack of a better term, more liberal politics in Poland? Are people completely pessimistic about it? Is, is there this feeling because of these protests that there's still a fight to be had? Or did Judas re-election mean like, oh, we're just going to go down this increasingly socially conservative law and justice road? I mean, the presidential election was very close. So it did show that there were millions of voters who, if not overtly support Rafał Trzaskowski himself, then wanted to block Andrzej Duda's re-election. Mm-hmm. So I think that's significant in itself. And so there was a lot of hope at the time that this would, even though Trzaskowski, the liberal candidate, had lost, that this would mean some kind of rebirth in the Polish opposition. And that hasn't happened. And part of it is the sort of mess that the country has been in during the coronavirus epidemic. But part of it, I think, is just the ongoing chaos within the opposition itself, right? There are a lot of personalities, a lot of different parties and factions and things, and probably a kind of lack of ideas and vision as well for for which way the country should go. Yeah. Can you talk a bit more about this? Because I think often we who are not in these countries will speak about like, oh, the ruling party and powerless opposition, but there are also forces within the opposition that are contribute to the current state of affairs, which I say not to blame them, right, but to say that there are actors with agency who are making choices that contribute to the shape of things politically. So could you speak a bit more about the current state of the opposition in Poland? So I actually did a piece about this for the New Statesman over the summer. Yes. It was called sort of eight tips for the Polish opposition. This was right after the presidential election. And my first tip, much to everyone's amusement, was that the opposition needs to have a program. 
because it doesn't really know what it stands for at the moment. It's sort of the, the main thing holding the Polish opposition together is the fact that it's against the government, rather than having very clear plans about social policy or um, which way it wants to kind of take the country in the next decade, let's say. And I think that's clearly a weakness. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Can you talk a bit about the perception of Poland as this kind of illiberal renegade in Europe, which is obviously largely driven by, obviously, law and justice, which you've talked about a lot, and also Poland's closeness with the Hungarian government, which is seen as spearheading this kind of politics in Europe. But as you've mentioned, the presidential election was incredibly close. And if a few thousand people had voted differently, then the narrative would be completely different about Poland. So are we to a degree getting Poland slightly wrong in viewing it as the kind of bulwark of illiberalism in Europe? I mean, this is definitely something that's linked to the current ruling justice party, right, that has perhaps changed Poland's image in the EU and more globally. I mean, before that, Poland was one of the big success stories of the post-communist years. So it had a peaceful transition to democracy and joined the EU and NATO and so on. So it was actually a kind of poster child. It was an example of what countries such as Ukraine or Belarus should do if they want to become stable European democracies. And the past few years, so in Poland and in Hungary, have both challenged this narrative about sort of the end of history after 1989 and so on. But I think that this is very much something that's linked to the current ruling party, which keeps winning, but at the same time does not represent all of society. I think that Polish society is actually much more diverse and there are interesting things happening with generational change And um, these protests in Poland in recent weeks show that there's an incredible energy and dissatisfaction with what has been happening in the country, not just when it comes to the abortion ruling, but more widely. Can you say more about this generational change? Is it that younger Polish people are more liberal? Do you have something that we have here at the US where, you know, there's the, yes, younger people generally are more progressive, but you also have younger people who are maybe more conservative than they would have been if they were coming up in a dip in an earlier generation. What does the younger generation in Poland politically look like? It's very interesting. Like most of the ruling parties, voters tend to be older, also in more rural areas, smaller towns, not the big cities. The younger generation is sort of, in a way, unpredictable, more liberal, but also there are some people voting for the far right, so even further right than the current government. So it's a bit of a mixed package. But I think that this generational change will be key to the change of power in Poland, in a way, in in coming years. Do you think that there will be a change in, in power in coming years? Not the near future, maybe, but in the short to medium term. I don't know. I mean, I I tend to see it more as a kind of long game, Polish politics than politics in general. So it's a bit like in in Poland, at least it's a bit of a pendulum sort of swinging, I'd say, more towards the liberal people before. And now it's more of this right wing, socially conservative nationalist phase. And this could swing back in the future, depending on what's happening in Poland and the economy, but also what's happening in the world more widely. And for example, the election in the US 
it'll be interesting to see what the consequences of that are for Poland, right? Because the current government was quite close with Donald Trump, or at least the current president, yeah. In a piece you recently wrote for The New Statesman, you talked about women being viewed as, quote, baby-making machines whose purpose is to counter-demographic decline in their country, which explains some of the anti-abortion rhetoric. And you also talk about this kind of idea that, quote-unquote, indigenous European populations are being replaced with immigrants, which is obviously the kind of bogeyman that is brought up by people like Orban and I suppose also law and justice. Can you talk a little bit more about this, I guess, conspiracism and the kind of these theories that can be likened to the great replacement idea that began in France and appears to have spread across Europe and certainly across these populist right-wing parties? I mean, what you're referring to is something that has been used specifically by Viktor Orban, but I think it's an idea that sort of resonates more widely here in Poland as well, the idea of keeping the immigrants out, especially people from outside Europe, but also the need to produce um, future generations of Poles, of Hungarians. And that's really been a, a cornerstone of the law and justice's social policy here in Poland. They've championed the traditional family and um, at the same time demonized people who do things differently. So, for example, gay people. That actually brings us very nicely into our listener question. So, Ido, if you want to to lead us up. And now it's time for a section that our colleagues at the New Statesman podcast like to call. You ask us. Okay, we have a question from an anonymous listener that I'm going to explain before turning it over to Annabelle. The question is, quote, what is going on with that Belgian sex party story? End quote. All right. So for those of you who were not following the Belgian or Hungarian as it may be um, sex party story, there was what Belgian national media is referring to as a sex party in Brussels. And authorities found, leaving this party, a Hungarian member of the European Parliament and also a member of Fidesz, the Hungarian ruling party, Josef Scheyer. And they found him with ecstasy. He said it wasn't his. But anyway, the point is that, that, that this man was at a sex party. Now, barring COVID restrictions, we would not ordinarily on this podcast talk about a man being at a sex party with other men. That's, you know, live your truth. But Josef Scheyer is, is prominent in Hungarian politics because he has been one of the people really leading the charge against full rights and privileges for the Hungarian LGBTQ population, including helping to rework the constitution such that it explicitly says that marriage is only for a man and a woman. So the reason that this is a story that we are talking about is that you have somebody who's participating at a sex party in Brussels in this liberal city and then back home working to ensure that society is more conservative and that life is more difficult for openly LGBTQ people. Okay, so with that backstory, Annabelle, what is your <laughs> your take on all of this? I mean, as you say, the fact that he was taking part in this party in Brussels is not in itself that interesting. It's more the question of the double standards. And that's something that I think we find quite often with people who are very openly homophobic, conservative politicians, perhaps in the United States. There are similar cases, aren't there? I think... This is a kind of clear example of politicians putting on one face in their own country and then kind of doing whatever they want when they're not in public. So, for example, a few years ago, I went and interviewed a, 
a doctor in Germany who performs abortions and he has a lot of Polish people who go and see him. And he was telling me that um, a lot of the women who come and see him are actually the wives of Polish conservatives. That's how he put it. So I think that's another example of people kind of doing whatever they want once they're sort of not on camera. We should also add that the host of the Brussels party has said that Polish police are trying to discredit him with a fake warrant because another one of the guests was a right-wing official from Poland's Ministry of Justice. You know, it's we should be fair and say that it's not just Hungarian officials who are allegedly wrapped up in this. Ido, do you have anything to add about this this event from this week? I don't know how much more you can say about a bunch of people getting together and deciding to have sex. The only thing I'd add to that is I think it kind of is obviously a, a very esoteric and in, in some ways quite remarkable event particularly for the double standards from the Fidesz MP that we've referred to. But it's also symbolic, I think, of how tired people are of lockdown and like staying inside and not doing anything fun, including and up to and including sex parties, if that's your thing. I think there's a real difference in the way people are approaching this second lockdown in Brussels and and everywhere in, in Europe that's currently living under restrictions similar to the spring where people are just really tired and there's no sense of the of the solidarity and the kind of sense of national togetherness and duty that there was in the spring people just want it to be over and sometimes that will include breaking the rules yeah pandemic fatigue is setting in all over and in all sorts of ways okay as ever we are going to close with our final segment in which we all look ahead and say what we will be watching next week annabelle you're our guest so we'll start with you I'll be watching the EU budget negotiations, which you've already mentioned. Let's see if Poland and Hungary continue to veto the the recovery fund or whether they sort of cave in next week. Can I just ask what you think they'll end up doing? I don't know. I mean, there's this talk of Poland maybe reaching some kind of deal with Germany and so on. I, I think it will be a real test of Poland and Hungary's defiance. Let's see how, how far they're willing to go. Ido, what will you be watching in the week ahead? Yeah, I'll be looking at the UK's vaccination program. So the UK just this week has been the first regulator in the world to approve the Pfizer BioNTech, BioNTech, I'm never sure how to pronounce it, vaccine. And so it says it will begin vaccinations next week. And it gives the UK a slight head start in its vaccination program because regulators in the EU and US and presumably elsewhere too are not expected to take a decision on this vaccine for another few weeks at least. This marks the beginning of widespread vaccination in the Western world. And really, the fact that Pfizer have already cautioned that the UK is not going to get too many doses, it's going to take a relatively long time to distribute all the 40 million doses that the UK has ordered, or to get the 40 million doses that the UK has ordered to the UK, means that this is definitely a marathon more than a sprint. And these few weeks of Head Start that the UK has may, will save some lives, certainly, but may not end up having too much impact in the grand scale of things, despite the the kind of grand rhetoric that we've seen from the UK recently. Yeah, we've been told that it's better than all the other countries. And you know what? Good for you. Well, you know what? As you as you rightly said on Twitter, when someone says that in the UK, it gets a bit of mockery. But when someone, when someone doesn't say it in the US, yeah, then then you get chastised. No place in American politics for you if you don't believe in US exceptionalism. That's increasingly untrue, but it's still, I think, generally the case. Anyway, 
Relatedly, and back onto the U.S., I, in the week ahead, will be keeping in mind that next week, the White House, despite the fact that we're in the middle of the global pandemic, is hosting, on December 9th, a Hanukkah party. I'm picking on the Hanukkah party because it's it's next week, but the White House is also planning on throwing various other holiday festivities. The State Department is throwing one reception, reportedly, that will have over 900 guests, as well as food and drink. But don't worry, they say they're going to maintain social distancing requirements. It is so wild to me that this administration is continuing to do this. We have seen what happens when they hold indoor events. They become super spreader events. And they're saying, let's go for round three. I will be interested to see who goes to this Hanukkah party next week. It seems to me that attendance of a Hanukkah party during a pandemic is out of keeping with the meaning of Hanukkah and the perseverance of, you know, (laughs) life. (laughs) But You know, everybody has to make their own choices because the government has not made policy for them. With that, all that remains is for us to thank so warmly our guest this week. Annabelle, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. And as a reminder, Annabelle Chapman is a European journalist. She's based in Warsaw and she is a New Statesman contributor. So you can read her work everywhere, but especially at the New Statesman. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review and tell your friends about it. And as a reminder, you can subscribe to our World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review and follow all of our international coverage at our international homepage, newstatesman.com slash international. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening and until next week. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. 
Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.